And welcome to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. We're joined this episode by James Beard award-winning chef, author, and restaurateur Alice Waters, a pioneer in the farm-to-table movement and the slow food movement and in California cuisine. She's been called the mother of modern American cooking, author of 14 books, including two children's books and many highly praised cookbooks. Her published books also include Coming to My Senses, The Making of a Counterculture Cook, We Are What We Eat, A Slow Food Manifesto, and The Art of Simple Food. A native of New Jersey and a graduate of UC Berkeley, She studied culinary art in France and Montessori method in England, and she's been honored by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the French Legion of Honor. And in 2015, she received the National Humanities Medal. We warmly welcome Ellis Waters to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Good to see you again and be with you. Oh, happy to be here. Happy to have you. (laughs) You know, in fact, I should say by way of introduction that um, two people in different interview situations said the same thing about you. One was Tom Letty, who I know was a close friend and very dear to you, and uh, I said more than a roommate. Uh, And the other was Calvin Trillin. And they both said, all those hippies in Berkeley in the 60s, but the one who really waged the only real revolution was Alice Waters. And there certainly is a lot of truth to that. I mean, you were behind what we call the food revolution. And a lot of that really got started with Chez Panisse. I mean, it got started before that with Montessori, which we'll talk about, and with uh, your time you spent in France. But let's talk first about Chez Panisse, because Chez Panisse has really been, to some extent, what got you on the map, and it's been a great success story. And you owe a lot of people. Your dad, for one, who found an organic farmer for you. We were talking a little bit about that but also Tom Luddy. I mean, so many people helped for a while. It looked like it was going to go under, didn't it? Oh, yes. (laughs) But fortunately, we never had an illusion that it was going to be a big success or a moneymaker. We were in it for the pleasure of doing it, truly. I was doing it with Charles and Lindsay Shearer, who were very good friends of mine. And we, we just thought, well, maybe the way to eat really great food was to start our own place. And it was that naivete that, that, that grew into something. <laughs> naivete works sometimes. So that's a good example it of it. I mean, you can't, I think also at that time, you know, we were, it was Berkeley in the 60s, and we weren't interested in making money. We were just interested in feeding our friends. That's and a world-class so, restaurant, though, that you became. And uh, <laughs> for a while, you were feeding your friends mainly with desserts, I know. But then the restaurant <laughs> took off, and the restaurant burgeoned and became a, a really a great success. Though I always wondered, you had a Michelin star, and then 2010, they, sort of, they took it away from you? Was that painful? Or? No. (laughs) In a word, no. I never expected to meet their standards. I was surprised we even got one. I think we did because we had a French chef at that time. But it wasn't about having this elegant eating situation where the waiters were wearing fancy clothes and And we only had one menu, if you can imagine, only one menu for 52 years downstairs. 
When did you start the, uh, you, you said one menu, but when did you start the two-chef system, which was a real innovation at the time, I think, wasn't it? Well, it was when I had a child and I realized that I couldn't work, you know, five or six days a week. And so I thought maybe we should break the job into two. And each person would work three days but get paid for six. And let me tell you, that was the greatest decision I've ever made for the restaurant because it kept all of the valuable cooks working. They worked right through the pandemic. They have been best friends, and it's really beautiful to experience that kind of collaboration, which can't happen when you're working so hard, you don't have a day off, you don't go out to dinner any other places, you can't um, really look through your cookbooks because you don't have time, and especially if you have children. And your daughter has really become kind of a major force <laughs> herself. <That's>, she has, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> Fanny. Uh, she's in Los Angeles now, is that right? Yes. And you have another restaurant in Los Angeles now, I believe, don't you? Uh, yes, I do. But I started it because it was part of my mission. <laughs> well, let's talk about that mission. But before we do, we're already getting people who have questions for you, and I want to yes. uh, go to them. Here's um, Chris from Tempe, Arizona. He says, I'm a recently widowed non-cook, eager to become more kitchen-engaged for myself and my adult daughter and two 20-something grandchildren. Tips on baby steps for year one, please. Baby steps for learning how to cook? I think that's what he wants to know, yeah. He says he's well, a non-cook and widowed. <laughs> Start with very, very simple things. I think knowing how to make a vinaigrette for a salad is unbelievably useful. Because it's not just for a salad, it could be for a, a chicken, it could be for, for so many things. And then maybe learn how to make an aioli, especially right now, because the garlic is just been picked in California. And it's just sweet and wonderful. And both are very, very easy things to do. Well, in your master class, you say if something's in season and ripe, just slice it, taste it, and serve it. And uh, your <laughs> emphasis is on delicious ingredients. Plus, I saw a video of you with Julia Child, and I want to talk with you about her because um, <laughs> she said something to me once in an interview that stayed in my sort of stayed in my consciousness to describe it. But you were just putting together a fennel. It was. It was. Fa you couldn't call it fast food anymore. That wouldn't work. But swift food. How about that? Uh, <laughs> a fennel salad, mushrooms on the bottom, cheese on top, salt and pepper, olive oil, and she's squeezing a lemon. And there's Parmesan. You got a great salad. True, <laughs> but she was so uh, great to be with because I knew she thought at the same time. This is foolishly simple. And But uh, she said to me things like, Alice, would you show, a, show me how you pit an olive? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that kind of, um, you know, 
making me feel like I was really doing something <laughs> important. <laughs> well, there's a tenderness about her that, you know, oh, I think. Oh, the best. She, she really, I think, opened the door for Shapenese to happen. I don't know whether we could have been really successful without her. She um, really taught us all how to pay attention to French food and to understand the beauty of eating together, all of that. And she came to Chez in the first year, and she brought important people. <laughs> well, what stayed in my consciousness was um, an interview I did at the Mark Hopkins with her and Jacques Pepin a number of years ago, and they were talking about steak, and she was pretty dramatic in her insistence upon how wonderful it is to eat a good steak. This doesn't necessarily align with what we're told about healthy food, though, does it? Yes, it does. Really, it does. As long as that steak comes from animals that have been grazing on regenerative organic land, and if you're not eating a huge... I like a steak. Every once in a while. Not a big one, but a small one. And there's nothing right now really wrong with eating meat as long as you are very sure about where it came from. And it's the meat companies are being very deceptive about packaging so that you can't understand exactly. So you have to go to that farmer's market to get it. <laughs> or you have to know that it's an organic, natural foods place. And also has to come from the right kind of soil, and it has to come from organically exactly. fed beef and so forth. I understand that, though there are some who just inveigh against any kind of carnivore activity, as I'm sure you're well aware. Well, because of climate, of course. But as many people I know understand that we have to re-fertilize the soil. We have to bring the carbon down into the ground where it belongs. And there's so many deserts around the world. And it would really help to have animals grazing on the, de on the deserts. It's a splendid idea, actually. Um, here's David from Seattle. He says, when do you season with spices while cooking or at the end of cooking just before eating? <laughs> All of the above. Uh, I'm depending on what it is, you know. I I salt meat be before it's being cooked, and maybe it leans a little bit more when it is cooking. And then you salt to taste at the table. But if you've got tasty meat, don't need any salt. <laughs> what is your most personal pride dish. Um, I was, for example, quite aware of the fact that you invented the goat cheese salad. And uh, <laughs> at one point you said, uh, boy, if you if you burn corn soup, just call it grilled corn soup. Um, that's an Alice Waters original too. But is there a particular dish that you have become in your own mind especially identified with? Salad in all of its glory. I'm not just talking about a green salad. I'm talking about a chicory salad in the winter with all the beautiful colors of chicory spotted 
you know, yellow leaves, beautiful lime green, maroon. I mean, and just think of the colors of carrots we have now. So you can just shave some carrots on the top of the salad. And it's a whole different dish every day. The beauty of how it's food looks beauty. is so important to you, isn't it? The beauty and the really senses. Important. <laughs> yeah. And really, really important. I think we've we're not out in nature. We're inside look at our screens. Kids used to play outside always. We'd always run out to see what the sunset was going to look like. I knew all the trees in New Jersey because my parents were were gardeners. Do you despair of that loss of the senses? That goes right back to your Montessori training. I mean, how little now we are immersed from how we were. Well, it's very interesting how important Montessori is right now because she did her work back in the 1880s as the first woman doctor in Italy. And she wanted to know why children who lived in poverty and hunger could not learn like other children. And she discovered that our senses are our pathways into our minds. And when you're sensorily deprived the information isn't coming in. And children who are, you know, living in that place of poverty aren't looking at beautiful things. They aren't listening to music. They aren't smelling, tasting, touching. All of those senses have been kind of closed down. And it feels like you're a little bit in jail because you're not experiencing the world. Well, he's, to this day, I think she's associated a lot with that, but also with books on top of the head. Right? <laughs> I don't know about books on top of the head. But Walking straight with books did. on top of the head, yeah. Um, <laughs> there are many books. I <laughs> can see Alice did. now as we're talking, many, and she talks about books as being <laughs> Cookbooks friends. Cookbooks on top of your head. Yeah, well, cookbooks on top of your head would make you even more, perhaps, aware of the senses. <laughs> uh, there's a listener from Lexington, South Carolina, named Ross, who says, tell me about Edna Lewis. She was a mentor of mine, very important person. I met her her with Marion Cunningham and Julia Child and Scott Peacock, all friends of mine. And uh, she ultimately came to the 40th birthday of Chez Panisse. But she always had a garden. And when she was invited one time to a big uh, food festival, she said she was making a dish with cream. And she asked if she could bring her cows so she could milk the cow (laughs) and have fresh cream. (laughs) Unfortunately, she wasn't allowed to do that. But she taught me so much about biodiversity of the south, of the east coast, where she lived. And I found her just so eager to educate her friends, 
to, te- to write these beautiful, sensual books. You felt like you were eating the dish as she was describing it. Sounds like you're almost describing MFK Fisher's writing, as I remember exactly. it. Exactly. It's yeah. in that spirit, like MFK. And what about, as far as mentor, Celia Chang? Oh, one of the best. <laughs> she died at 101. Um, and with her ability to remember every wine, every dish she had when she ate out right to the end. She was somebody who kind of saw herself as my big sister. So when she heard I was trying to build a cafe on the second floor of Chez Panisse, she said, I want to get you just the right architect. I want it to be beautiful like the rest of the restaurant. So she did find the architect who designed our cafe. But she always gave me, every time she came for dinner, one of the few people who gave me really good feedback. And Alex, Even wasn't there, she would write me a note. <laughs> Alex wants to know what your easy vinaigrette go-to recipe might be. Okay, this is very important to find good olive oil and good vinegar. For me, of course, it means organic. And I have to tell you that we do olive oil tastings every year at Japanese blind tastings, olive oil and vinegar. And this last year was the first year that California olive oil came in uh, uh, as better than or as good as the Italian and the Spanish and the French olive oils. So we get Seca Hills oil, but it's a matter of taste. It's really olive oil. Some people like it a little sharper. Some people like it very smooth. And I think you have to try them and see what you like. And vinegar, I feel the same way about it. You want to make sure that it's coming from organic sources. And I love red wine vinegar. But what I do is I have a mortar and a pestle, a little small one. And I put a clove of garlic in there, a little bit of salt, and I grind it all together. And when it's, you, it almost disappears at the bottom of the bowl. And then I pour vinegar in there. And I just let it sit until I'm ready to serve the salad um, to the guests for dinner. And then I add the olive oil stirring with a little whisk until it sort of comes together. But I'm tasting all the time. I'm sticking my finger in there and saying, more vinegar, more olive oil. And I might stick a little bit of leaf of lettuce in there. But I, I'm, it's, it's second nature to me now, so I, I never think about it. But you don't want to have too much garlic and during the winter it gets a little strong so maybe you want to have half a clove and add more if you need it but again it's that taste and taste again when you talk about organic uh, i can't help thinking about 
There's still a lot of criticism. Uh, in fact, well, Bourdain, for example, who criticized probably every chef uh, who <laughs> made any kind of name for themselves, including you. But he was always talking about organic being kind of a snobbery, elitist thing because of the cost. What do you say to that? I say the cost to the environment and to my health is more important than anything else. And I'm willing to pay the extra cost. But I know because I've just written a cookbook about school lunch. And I have made sure to buy all of the food for the cookbook retail organic, okay? And it fits into the USDA reimbursement. So there you are. It depends on what you're cooking. And if you're not using too much meat or cheese in the dishes, you absolutely can fit into that reimbursement. That's extraordinary what you've done vis-a-vis school lunches. Let's talk about that. I mean, and also let's talk about what started at MLK Junior School in Berkeley, because now we've got a network of over 600 schools. Is that right? You got a map there. (laughs) But what it did for me, and I started that because the principal of a middle school in Berkeley called me and asked me if I could help beautify his school. Just out of the blue, he said that. He knew I cared about gardens, not necessarily, and food, but he wasn't thinking about me doing what I ended up doing. I just took one look at this big school, a thousand kids, teenagers, speaking 22 different languages at home. And I just said, oh my goodness, you have this huge piece of land that the school was built on in 1921. And There's a vacant lot over there filled with garbage. I see that as the garden. And then I saw one of those portable buildings next to it, and I said, oh, it would make a nice kitchen classroom. And and then I said, I see a cafeteria down there (laughs) so that we can seat all of the students and they could eat together. And... He said, thanks very much, Alice, I'll give you a call. And I was completely surprised that he did. And I said, Neil, it's all the way or nothing. And he said, just do it however you want. And so I hired two beautiful people to take care of the garden and the kitchen classroom. And they weren't certified teachers. They just loved children and knew about gardening and knew about cooking. And they figured out how to teach all of the academic subjects to the standards, the academic standards imposed by the school system through in the kitchen and in the garden. So you might have a geography class in the kitchen and you're studying the Middle East and you're making pita bread and you're making hummus and you're making wilted greens. And when you are empowered to cook that together, it's amazing what happens. 
and you're learning, you're tasting the Middle East. You're tasting it. You're smelling it. And you never forget. When you're talking about the Middle East and education, I'm thinking about your education, too. I mean, in Turkey, for example, getting exposed to all this hospitality by the Turks had a big effect on you. In France, just seeing strawberries, wild strawberries being sold in the marketplace. I'm not talking about Ingmar Bergman's wild strawberries here, but I mean, these are the kinds of things that were very formative for you. Almost yes. hesitate to use the word, but seminal. And now you have all of this for these children learning and learning yes. basic subjects too. And then the garden project makes me think of what you did with prisons, with jails. Yeah. I've got another question for you actually, um, but I want to find, I want to catch up with you on, uh, on, on lots of stuff. Yeah. This is a, uh, a question that comes from Santa Rosa from Reed. The owners of Single Thread, Michelin Start, and Hillsburg just bought two properties to develop. A petition has been filed to ask them to meet needs of middle-class residents. Alice's thoughts? I think it's amazing what they're doing with their gardening, their, their dedication to organic, regenerative agriculture the way that they are caring about the climate and our health, and at the same time making these inventive dishes. Now, mind you, I couldn't afford to eat there all the time, but I think they are absolutely, seriously inventing what can be made from the biodiversity of the land up there in the Napa Valley. And it's so, um, I don't know, it's inspiring to me. Just the way the cooking around the world and going to other countries, eating both food in fancy places and not fancy places, it gives you ideas. Well, you've uh, certainly had no dearth of those. What about regenerative agriculture, though? I mean, you're doing uh, something with UC Davis, with a partnership, moving in all kinds of directions with the foundation. Um, let's kind of sketch this out for people who may not be familiar with it. It's exciting stuff. It is. UC Davis asked me if I would do an institute for edible education and regenerative agriculture. And I said, <laughs> I would love to. It's at the Aggie Square campus in Sacramento. And um, they thought that, that it could, and I believe it could be a real teaching place for um, school um, food directors who could come and understand what we know about buying food locally and directly from the farmers, the ranchers, the fishers. I don't want any middleman taking the money because the farmers cannot afford to have their food bought at a wholesale price. They need the real cost. And I learned this 52, well, 50, 45 years ago when we found Bob Kennard up in Sonoma. And we said we'd like to buy the food 
directly from you, give you the money. Actually, your dad found him, didn't yes, he? Yes, actually, my dad found him. <laughs> and he didn't know what regenerative ag was, and he went to Bob's farm, and he said, where are the vegetables? What's happening here? And Bob went out into the field with my father, pulled away these weeds, pulled up a carrot, and he said, my carrot is more nutritious than anybody else's. I think he said 25%. And my father sort of laughed. But in fact, they are 25% more nutritious. And it's because he's allowing the soil to be all that it can be in giving the, the carrot its nutrition. That's what regenerative ag is about. It's about allowing all the little bugs and worms and plants to give the nutrition and to pull down the carbon. I wonder if this started the rumor that went around uh, on social media. I have to confess, sometimes I look at the reels on TikTok. There are a bunch of kids who are saying that carrots, if they're tended in the soil properly, will give you much better eyesight and make you much smarter. <laughs> and that's gone around like a meme. I mean, a huge meme. Now, oh, really? young people, you can actually find it on TikTok. <laughs> uh, you can get inflated with some of these notions of what nourishment can do, perhaps. Oh, but, uh, well, you know, we didn't have any pesticides in the soil before 1950. Thank you, Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson, 60 years ago, she told us we were polluting the land and the sea. And she went to Congress, and she tried to make an impression. And maybe we got rid of DDT, but that was it. And we're still talking about a nourishing school lunch for children that is grown with pesticides and herbicides and all of the above. And it's shocking to me that we are not understanding that health is in the ground. Well, I've got a couple questions here that I want to go to, uh, but first, uh, a couple of other questions tying in with what you're talking about now. This is from a food lawyer friend who writes, one controversial topic lately is how to define the term ultra-processed foods and the health and nutrition implications. The only This only involves the method of production, not the ingredients. And some scientists take the position that nutritious core foods under the U.S. dietary guidelines, such as sliced bread, whole grain, breakfast cereal, and flavored yogurt, may be considered ultra-processed under certain definitions, but that such foods should not be stigmatized based on the degree of processing. What are your thoughts? Well, I have to refer to Marion Nessel about this because she knows much more about it than I do. But I know that the growing of the food is key. And I certainly believe in whole grain bread and I believe in yogurt. And I want to know that they're both organic, regeneratively produced. Another question, also advocates of so-called clean labels may promote grocery store shelf stable products that claim no preservatives. But in some cases, foods may be less safe due to a lack of preservatives or may have a much shorter shelf life. Where do you think the line should be drawn between food ingredients and food safety? Again, that's maybe Mary and Nestle's, but <laughs> like your thoughts. Yes, we need to. It's, it's about food safety, but it's about Knowing where your food comes from, again, before 1950, we only had 
local food. We imported coffee, tea, and spices. Maybe I would get an orange at Christmas from Florida, and maybe I would get, my dad would get a date from California for Christmas. We never had anything but local food in every country of this world. Well, all that food that's shipped around the country certainly didn't help our climate uh, and the carbon that was being contributed to our climate. And now, when you have local food, that's one of the ways of really becoming much more balanced. Absolutely is. But the thing that I'm always saying is that you cannot have tasty, ripe food unless you eat locally produced food. Because when it's picked of an avocado in Mexico, when it's hard, when it gets to California, it, it, it doesn't have any flavor like an avocado picked from the tree here and eaten in season. And so seasonality is key. And we just have to learn again, like my mother did, to can the applesauce in the fall so that you have some during the winter. You eat differently in the winter than you do at other times of the year, differently in the summer. But I am positive that it is this strict adherence to seasonality and ripeness that has made Japanese desirable over all these years. People come and eat a plum right now, and they say, oh my God, (laughs) that's the best plum I've ever had. And I say, well, come next year (laughs) for plum again. (laughs) Here's Bill from Charlottesville, Virginia, who says, is Alice familiar with Joel Salatin and Polyface Farms? And if so, what is her opinion of their work or his work? I love his work. I love it. I I always went to Washington, D.C. to do uh, a Sips and Suppers event to raise money for homeless people. And um, he was nearby, and, and uh, I thought, well, I'll get some of his chickens <laughs> served. But it's in January, and he said, I don't have any chickens now at this time of the year. We have to have something else. But he he taught me so much about free range everything. And he's a great guy. Well, speak, speaking of homeless people, what can we do? I mean, you're an educator. I see you as an educator among so many other identities that you have. That's when you've had some real resounding success. What do you see as a way to educate people who just don't eat right, and they don't eat right because they're indigent, they're poor. Okay, well, I want to talk about that because I went 30 years ago to a project in Santa Cruz being started by the Zen Center um, here in California, and they wanted to make a garden for the homeless. Here we are 30 or 35 years later. It is 30 (laughs) acres of land. Students from UC Santa Cruz come and work side by side with the homeless in the garden. But it is unbelievably therapeutic. Unbelievably. Everybody who leaves it finds a job and a home. And I don't know why more people don't know about this. 
I know about it from interviewing people involved in it, but then you get to the question of scale. I mean, you did magnificent in terms of scaling your educational programs and the programs that exist now in those the map you showed us. How about scaling something like that? Well, there's no reason why we can't. I mean, for instance, the University of California has 264,000 acres of land. I mean, the government land around the country could put people to work. But I started the Edible Schoolyard Project because this woman, Catherine Sneed, from, uh, called me from the San Francisco County Jail. She said, if I am growing vegetables with the inmates here, would you buy them? to support the project. And I said, of course, Catherine. And she said, well, you have to come meet my students. I said, no, just send the vegetables. And she wouldn't, she shamed me into going. And I'll never forget that day. It was in the summer and I went and there were high sunflowers. And she gathered all of her students around. She said, tell Alice about the garden. And one kid, young kid raised his hand. He said, I shouldn't be saying anything. It's my first day in the garden. It's the best day of my life. And I said, right then and there, if you can do it in a jail, you can do it in a school. And I believe that every school needs a garden, whether it's up the wall of the building, whether it's across the street, whether it's connected to a botanical garden nearby. Every school should have a garden. How about every home? Well, every home. I planted a victory garden out front of my house during the pandemic, and I just left it. I have a garden behind my house. But this was, I took up all my flowers in front, and I put in vegetables because I was worried I wouldn't have enough salad. And I took one of the old, posters from World War II. And I put it up there. And people stopped and said, what do you, how do you keep the deer away from your, <laughs> your plants? And I said, oh, I plant something for the deer, too. <laughs> they, they, they like garlic. <laughs> they like your roses, too. I mean, well, I, don't, I have a friend I who, they do. <laughs> I didn't plant I have a either. friend who calls them friend calls them rats with good PR. <laughs> it's just when you think of Bambi, not very nice, but I understand that sort of thing. What do you think about food from cells? There, I mean, there's a lot of talk about getting us away from and eating I animals and so forth. I just feel like we're part of nature, and we need to eat the food that is grown in the soil. It is what is good for our health. I can't imagine chemically making something that tastes like food in a lab. I can't, and I won't. And yet there are people who say it, they can't tell the difference. It's that close. Well, it may taste the same. As Eric Schlosser said when he went to those chemical factories in New Jersey, when he wrote Fast Food Nation, that they know how to get the flavor there. There's no question of in fast food. That's how they've seduced a nation in a world into eating it. But it's not real, and it's not good for us, and it's not good for the planet. And so how can we continue to believe that we can make something 
that's better than nature. You have a lot of faith in nature. I do. And yet, I, I, you mentioned Eric Schlosser, and I can't help thinking about the last time I interviewed him about a book he wrote that kept me up at night because it was about all the close calls we had with respect to nuclear incineration and annihilation from nuclear weapons. And there's a lot of radioactivity out there. There are a lot of toxics out there in the soil. I mean, as much as we might want to be constantly monitoring and vigilant, it's what we are facing, isn't it? Yes, we are faced with that. But I, I do believe, though, that food can bring us together. In an incre- it's, it has power. It, it can, everybody eats something or should. Of course, everybody goes to school or should. So it's the very best place to talk about all of this in depth. And I think that when these teenagers at Martin Luther King leave school, they'll all know about these ideas and make the right decisions for their lives. I even think that it's really teaching about not only biodiversity, but just diversity in general. And it's teaching about about, um, community. It's teaching about respect for the people who grow our food. I mean, we need to support them. And that's why I call this project I'm dreaming of school-supported agriculture. Like community-supported agriculture, right? You put the farmer first and pay that person. Schools could be that support team for the local people who are doing the right thing and taking care of their farm workers. But just like I learned from Bob Kennard and his farm and all the people who wanted to sell to us because we paid the real price, I learned that they are doing the most important work on the planet, taking care of the soil and taking care of the people who take care of, of all the crops. And it's- I think you said the lessons are building community and understanding what nourishes and uh, also stewardship of the land. That's which can't exactly, be left of out course. Of and, and I do believe it teaches us the values of our democracy. Sharing plates of food, everybody having a voice about how something is cooked. It's, it is democracy. That is, everybody has an idea that's valuable. I've got a question from Susan in Buffalo, New York, who wants to know, what do you grow in your own garden? Salad. <laughs> no, but the thing I grow most are herbs. I love to fry rosemary and um, uh, and sage, so those are always there. I always have parsley and I always have cilantro, but I have trees in my garden that are very important, a fig tree because I love to bake things in fig leaves. I have a quince that's coming out and an apple. I have bay leaves, they're very important again, my cooking. 
and I have lots of roses. Not that I candy rose petals, but I take them to Chez Panisse, and they do that. <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm mostly loving the security of having the ingredients for a salad right at my fingertips. And I planted a lot of vegetables that I knew my daughter would love, like um, uh, string beans, little string beans. And she used to eat them, sit in a little teepee and pull the beans off the vine. And she loved the wild strawberries. And I planted wild strawberries for her. But she loved the smell of mint and verbena. And those are very important in my garden, too. Mike from Brooklyn says, do you see a future where medicine, not just food, is got primarily sourced from your garden or farm? I dream about that. Yes, I believe in that. And I think, in a way, the Chinese and the Asian cultures could really help us. Because Cecilia Chang took me to China back in 1983 <laughs> when we were the only plane landing in in Beijing, if you can imagine. And she said, I'm so glad we're here in the spring because it's a moment for red and green amaranth and we need to eat lots of that for our health. And so she managed to find it somehow <laughs> and get us eat it while we were in China. Well, there are many who certainly speak about food as being medicine. Yes. I mean, food not only for but she, our future and for survival, but as a, a medicinal exactly. way of dealing with our immune system. That's exactly what Cecilia knew, and I wished that I had really documented everything she knew about it. I'd love to have a conference at UC Berkeley where we invite people to educate us from China about food. Got to get along better with China well, now these days. Well, that could help. You know, we it could would help, yeah. Thank them so. for <laughs> what they can give us about food and about agriculture. And Chris uh, from Arizona says, it sounds like Chez Panisse's secret mission is to open the fullness of human senses to inspire enlightened, wholesome human behavior. Does this ring a bell? Well, it touches my heart for him to say that because I hope that that's what people feel when they come, that they're part of a family, part of a community. I hope that that you know, I've felt that from the free speech movement in Berkeley in the 60s. I've felt a camaraderie that we all had together. And Mario Savio taught me many, many things. But he loved the, the, the way that everybody had different points of view and wanted to hear them. And he... He really understood what education is for. It's not for getting a major and sticking on that your whole time. It's for learning about the world and learning about music and art. and It's what makes your life rich or has made mine. And I'm so grateful 
to people like Tom Luddy, like David Goines, who brought his beautiful art posters into Chez Panisse. But many people have been part of the restaurant over the years because of the University of California and the people that they brought. Even the Dalai Lama came. <laughs> As you mentioned, Mario Savio, and your roots in the free speech movement and all, I have to ask, because you are a visionary in so many ways, and you're now a grandmother as well. How hopeful are you, optimistic or sanguine about the future, especially that's going to be inherited by your grandchild? Well, I'm frightened about the future, and especially with the UN prediction of 2030. So it means that if we don't take action now, we're not going to be able to address climate. And I think that we need a global effort and the place to make change is for children in schools. And food is, as I said, and I keep saying, <laughs> it's the way to address climate and health and beauty. And, and it will, especially the local part, that is our future. We have to think of how we can live in communities and support each other. We could do much better in this country, and thanks to people like you, we are doing better. But when you think at the global scale, it sort of dwarfs the mind. Well, it, it does and it doesn't. I'm going to Japan. Of course, um, they've always been very advanced in terms of food and agriculture. But I'm going on book tour in a couple of weeks, and I'm I'm just there. They're doing remarkable things, and I'm going to take a lot of notes while I'm there. But I was just amazed when I went to Brazil, and I had an opportunity to know that they are buying food that's from local farmers for the schools, and they really care about how it's grown and how it's prepared. And I, most every country in the world cares about food for children more than we do. And so we have a lot to learn from everyone else. And if we had really this mission, and I think slow food, Carla Petrini will help a whole lot with this idea. He's always believed in local food and always believed in education. Yeah, I did a very uh, early interview with Carlo Petrini when the slow food movement was pretty much not on the map, and I thought, this is going to take hold, and it has. I was, for a change, being a little bit prescient. Um, please say something Andy from Oakland wants to know about David Lanscoins. You've mentioned him a couple times. I don't want to cry, <laughs> but, but he... He was such a generous person. He, he, he made posters for us every year. And he printed them with his letterpress about eight blocks away from Chez He made the first poster for Chez But every year he did it 
only wanted was a few dinners <laughs> for it. But he was somebody who was always willing to take a risk. And when he believed in something, nothing could stop him. He was one of the first ones put in jail during the free speech movement for supporting free speech. And so I knew him back then. And he was somebody who worked, believed that work can be dignified and fascinating and artful. And he really, um, meaningful work is what I associate with David. He gave me a, a really conviction about everybody deserves to have meaningful work. And we have left that behind during the whole fast food indoctrination. It's like, who cares? Who cares where food comes from? Who cares how to eat it? Who cares who made it? <laughs> you know, and people are asked to work in unconscionable circumstances, windowless buildings, long hours, vending machines for lunch. I mean, I couldn't do it for five minutes. I couldn't. It's a lovely, loving, and meaningful tribute to David. Well, uh, love to sit around the dinner table with you. I hope we can do that. And I want to uh, express my thanks to you. Um, Shannon, our producer, says thank you for everything you do. You are a true inspiration, and I would certainly second that emotion. And thanks to all who joined us live for this Gray Matter with Michael Krasny episode and all who will be hearing the episode in the near or not so near future by listening on the Apple or Spotify podcast or on our website at graymatter.show. That's gray with an E. We welcome your joining our growing community of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny and urge you to consider becoming members, which will entitle you to a range of different benefits. Just let us know of your interest by going to graymatter.show. And a special thanks to our Gray Matter team, uh, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team of Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, and Jeff. And special thanks once more to this episode's very special guest, Alice Waters. Thank you. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.